You're listening to Mass Device Radio. In this interview from 2013's Big 100 East, Mass Device reporter Brad Perriello speaks to CEO and founder of Next Stage Medical Jeff Burbank, Zoll CEO Richard Packer, Conformist CEO Philip Lang, and Ocular Therapeutics CEO Omar Sani about what it takes to keep companies on the cutting edge, as well as their ups and downs as heads of major medtech companies. Thank you for downloading this Mass Device Radio podcast. Each of your firms is sort of living evidence that medtech really does thrive on innovation, and that's a word that's bandied about quite a bit. I'm hoping to hear from each of you about how you sort of keep the edge on innovation and keep your companies aligned and focused towards continuing to innovate and continuing to sort of push things forward. And Rick, I'll start with you. Well, I think uh, as was talked about a little bit earlier in med devices, it's, there's just so much opportunity to change the trajectory of people's lives. And at Zoll, all we do is bring people back from cardiac arrest. A big problem, we haven't solved it. So there is a simplicity in that we focus on that problem and then we spend a lot of time with the clinicians that are trying to solve that problem. And if you are committed to solving the problem and you're spending time with the people that are at the front lines of it, because we just make the tools, um, I think the innovation comes fairly naturally um, in our industry. And Jeff, your company is, I consider, very innovative with home hemodialysis. I would be very interested to hear your take on that. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, we had an interesting kind of transition because when you're a startup and you move into commercialization, all of a sudden it's not me asking for results, it's customers asking for results. And all of a sudden your resource, resources and development can be kind of shepherd to solving the problem of the day. One of the things we did was separate out a team to focus on five to ten year innovation so that we weren't, you know, sacrificing the immediate needs for the long-term needs. and. Um, so I think it's, it's culture and it's structure that can facilitate those types of things. Philip, how about you? From our perspective, it comes a lot down to discipline. We have uh, a lot of different possibilities that we can penetrate into, different joints in patient-specific technology. The temptation is that you do too much at a given time, so less is more. Uh, we started up with partial knee systems. We were commercializing those for a period of four years while we were step-by-step step preparing for the initially the development and then the launch of a total knee system. We did that slowly. We were 18 months in limited release with volume, voluntary volume restrictions with our surgeons, perfected that system before we went into broad commercial launch. And we're taking that same approach really literally with every device that's coming approximately every two years we can release the next device, but we're doing that in a very measured and staged fashion. Um, and then we leverage on top of that continuous feedback from our clinicians. We have no inventory. So our sales force has specific instructions, any issue, any suggestion that comes from a clinician, please provide it back. We capture that. And the innovation cycle for the existing products, in fact, the product life cycle is typically about two to 2.5 years. So within that product life cycle, we basically come with the next generation. So uh, our iTotal system, when we went into, pardon me, into limited release initially, it took us in fact 18 months and we released the second generation already. So it's this continuous product improvement and leveraging product life cycles that uh, can be managed much faster because you don't have inventory. 
Amar. Uh, so I'll, I'll take a little bit of an abstract philosophical view on this, if you don't mind. Um, I've not stuck to one particular area. I've jumped around from neurosurgery, spine surgery, ophthalmology, radiation oncology, et cetera. So it's hard to become deep enough expert in each one of these particular areas. So I have been technology-centric, field agnostic. And the way uh, I categorize my approach is sort of a diamond in the rough type of an approach where if you go to clinicians only and ask them what they need, they will give you only answers for incremental improvements, not revolutionary improvements. You have to then understand what they're trying to articulate. It's like if you told people who earlier had a horse carriage and saying, what do you want better in the horse carriage, they would only tell you to put maybe rubber wheels on it, put four horses instead of two horses, you're not going to get an automobile. So then you have to look at saying what technology you really have. And maybe somebody in the past has done some crazy experiments that may be on the right track, but they didn't quite get there. And from that, synthesize the revolutionary product that really can come in and make a big difference. And polish that and polish that until it presents itself as a diamond. So that's a good segue to my next question, which is what is the most exciting new development in your field? Amar, I'll, I'll throw that at you first. So uh, right now, um, I'm focusing probably 80% of my effort on the ophthalmology company that I'm running. So if you look at the sensors that we have and ask yourself which one of those would you be willing to lose the least, I would say 9 out of 10 people would say sight. Sight is probably the most debilitating loss. So if you look at sight and then look at a macro view of what are the leading causes of blindness, preventable cataracts, um, and other ones, macular degeneration, glaucoma, these are some of the major causes of blindness. Particularly glaucoma is a preventable cause, but compliance is an issue. So we look <coughs> at that and saying, how can we go in and take the compliance issue completely off the table? So the, the innovation that we are bringing in is something that we are calling now tailored therapies. Not just sustained therapies, but tailored therapies, one-time therapies that would provide the entire course of medication. And the therapy is given as the disease manifests itself. So if you take a look at, say, an antibiotic or a steroid or a glaucoma medication, glaucoma is continuous, so you need the therapy to be continuous. Infection starts out extreme and then tapers off over time. Inflammation increases after a few days and then tailors off tapers off. So you need medication that is delivered in those cascades as opposed to just taking one tablet a day or three drops a day, etc. So we are creating therapies of that nature which can take compliance off the table, manage the disease better, decrease the side effects all at the same time, and provide, you know, change ophthalmology. Philip, what's most exciting to you in orthopedics these days? If you looked at our industry in the last 10 years, and you would go to the trade shows, and you would talk to clinicians, or you would talk to sales reps, competitors, and kind of hear what are they focusing on. The focus for, for this entire industry was really um, potentially better uh, surgical techniques, higher surgical accuracy. Very few people talked about OR efficiencies. No one talked about patient outcomes. And that's in an industry that in the United States, so knee replacement specifically, there's about 700,000 procedures performed annually. And if you would talk to the clinicians, you would hear, well, my 15-year uh, outcomes are excellent. Specifically, the survival rate of my implant is in the high 90s. If it's 95%, 98%, whatever, those were the things that were commonly quoted. 
this is great technology. No one talked about how is the patient actually doing. And uh, when you then look in the academic literature over the course of the last five years, starting with the Swedish and the Australian knee registries, all of a sudden there are these data appearing that patient outcomes are actually not good. One in five patients is complaining about pain, instability, limited range of motion, uh, etc. And here's this really large industry that completely neglected this. And what we've seen over the course, in particular, the last two or three years, that all of a sudden, this becomes center point of the discussion. Um, every major company now tries to show that, uh, well, patient outcomes in knee replacement are limited. 20% of patients, possibly more, depending if you look at the registries, are not doing well. This is what we do about it. Now, if you look at the innovation that's being done, to your point, it's all incremental innovation. You add a couple of sizes to your existing inventory of implants, knee replacements, hip replacement, whatever there is. But you haven't actually dramatically changed the paradigm how you design the device, how you deliver the device, uh, and how you help the patient. And so the exciting thing for us is that there's an entire need that is being created that's now being driven by an industry that has woken up initially through some of the academic publications. And we're right at the right time. We're right in the center spot of all of this development. And that's, that's very exciting for us. What about in Reno? So I think the most exciting thing is uh, what I call degrees of freedom for design. It used to be that everyone was focused on uh, making a component to a device for the treatment. And all your math was about the treatment. So were you the cheapest component, the best component? Uh, then it started to migrate to uh, the cost of therapy. And now it's migrating to something that's even more exciting in my view, which is the cost of society. So what's the quality of life that you're delivering for the total cost of society? We talk about it in capitation or you know, disease management, but the industry's migrating to there. And, when you're stuck in a course to have a new degree of freedom for design and value creation, that's very exciting. So I think it's going to happen in multiple different specialties, but our specialty is one that's really pushing very far in that due to the reimbursement structure and the structure of the industry. So that creates just a whole different way of looking at how to create value and what the opportunities are in the industry. Rick, resuscitation. So I think there's a big shift in resuscitation. You know, I've been at it for 20 years, and primarily our focus was getting more beating hearts to the hospital, uh, and then suddenly realized that we were getting a lot of beating hearts to the hospital, and not many of them were getting out of the hospital. And we really shifted to post-resuscitation care. Um, the therapy of therapeutic hypothermia is now uh, standard of care here in the United States, but it's only used by about 30% of practitioners on a regular basis. And we're only really beginning to understand what a neuroprotective therapeutic hypothermia is, and just beginning to scratch the surface there in terms of what it can do, how to do it, the technologies that can induce hypothermia, um, and I think that will open up a whole new way to try and raise the, the uh, success of resuscitation. Sticking with you, Rick, you shepherded Zoll through another huge merger that we could talk about tonight with Asahi Kase, I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, and even today announced the buyout of LifeBridge. I'm hoping that you can give us some advice on the M&A process, both from a buyer's perspective and from a seller's perspective, as you've 
had the opportunity to sit on both sides of that table. Yeah, so, so I think you've struck on a couple of, uh, of unique acquisitions um, in that Zola wasn't looking to be acquired either. We were not running a process. Uh, a little bit different than KCI in that our acquirer was someone that was known to us, and we had spent uh, about a year trying to get them very excited about our product technology and our portfolio because we were moving into Japan for the first time and we wanted them to spend the copious amounts of money that it takes to develop a Japanese entity. Um, and we wanted to get them excited to do that. In the meantime, they were spending that year basically doing what Apex was doing, understanding Zoll and our product and our trajectory such that they could make an offer. Um, I think we at Zoll are the luckiest people in the world because uh, these folks are, um, they basically need everything that Zoll has, including all of our people. So for myself as a CEO, there was no push or pull um, emotionally. It was just about the money because all of the people were going to retain their jobs. Um, I was going to continue to lead Zoll. My management team was going to continue to lead Zoll. It was a very, very exciting uh, prospect that we could have more freedom, more resources to do that which we love to do. And once a price was reached that I knew that our shareholders would be thrilled with, it was an easy process going forward. From an acquirer's perspective, I agree very much with what was said before, that the match of the cultures is very, very important. Zoll has a very strong culture, as most of your companies do. Asahi matches up very, very closely with us, uh, so it's moved very, very easily. And you have had an existing distribution relationship um, just, it was beginning. They had one of our six products that they had distribution rights. We were interested in having them have distribution rights for other things. But it's very early as things go in the world of Japan. It takes a long time to move things. But as we go out and we look at acquisitions, uh, at the top of our list is the people that might join Zoll. And do they think about the mission and do they have the passion for their mission that we have at Zoll. And if that match isn't there, if this is really a financial transaction, it's never been something that Zoll has been excited about. Uh, we really look for a cultural match first. It worked for us as being acquired and it's certainly how we move forward as an acquirer. Amar, turning to you, you've sold, I think, six companies, if my count is correct, and along the way have developed a fairly unique approach to merger and acquisition. First off, how have you managed to leverage your work with liquid gels into so many different platforms? And sort of as a follow-on to that, what have you learned about the negotiation process with large strategic buyers? That's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things that uh, we did early on is I realized that uh, when you have a very broad platform technology, putting it all into one operating company, no operating company can do full justice to it. So we, I learned that the hard way when 50 of my patents went uh, with Focal, which got acquired by Genzyme. No regrets, but I couldn't access that technology, so I had to go out and invent more stuff. So then I said, okay, well, you know, it's a simple lesson, but learned it well. Put it into a holding company structure, and from that created operating companies which are field specific. So that allowed us to improve the technology. One, you take away everything else so it doesn't distract you. When you don't have those options, you don't keep defocusing. So it focused us, 
And then each place that we worked on, we discovered more improvements and we could take those improvements and create the next company. So we stood on the shoulders of each of the previous companies. And we became Even experts. Even though they were in very yeah. different areas. So they were non-competing areas. So as we finished one company, went to the next one or the next one, and we spun things out, et cetera. <laughs> the companies didn't compete with each other. In fact, they cooperated because the IP was fed back to the holding company and everybody got everybody's improvements in their particular fields. So it created a pretty, so this is actually taught at Harvard now as a case on how to execute on platform technologies. So that was the model improvement of how to improve on the intellectual property piece of thing. The acquirers initially didn't understand this. And I remember sitting across the table from, I think, one of the large medical device companies with about 20 lawyers on the other side trying, and how does this thing work? Now, how come we don't own all of this IP and stuff? But anyway, uh, competition keeps everybody honest is the corollary of how to deal with uh, the acquirers. As we went through this process, however, we cultivated close relationships and we've gotten to know most of the medtech uh, acquirers, myself and my partner, Fred Koshravi, who's on the West Coast. And we keep close, we meet at various occasions, they find out what's going on, but don't pitch things too early. You've got to do the heavy lifting yourself because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the innovation to be de-risked and to really go through the regulatory hurdles, all of those things that PMAs, nobody's doing PMAs anymore. We do PMAs. So we will go ahead and de-risk the proposition, get it through the system, present a unique thing, and then the process is easy at that point in time when you know, there's something to talk about. So don't try to create artificial auctions, create, you know, so, uh, create trust with the, with the acquirer. They're not, we don't view it as a one-time transaction. We've had, we sold a few companies to Boston Scientific, a few companies to Covidian, et cetera. So we view those things as ongoing because they wouldn't respect us if we looked at it as a one-time mm -hmm. event. Uh, Jeff, turning to you, founded Next Stage in 1998, took it public in 2005. Uh, like Philip, you have a bit of a unique situation in that you're still at the helm of the company you founded. Um, I want to ask you, what was the most challenging part of the whole process from inception through to taking it public and to where you are today? And second, how have you managed to, to keep hold of the corner office from the company you started? <laughs> and Philip, I'm going to ask you that and then about it. Well, depends how long Jeff takes. Uh, it'll be quick. <laughs> so, I, I think, um, first of all, it's been a tremendous ride, a wonderful personal opportunity. I'm very grateful for the opportunity um, and still enjoy it. So I think that's part of it. Um, you know, trying to distill uh, 14 years of this pathway into what was the hardest thing. Uh, there were many hardest things along that course. And I think uh, one of the reasons why I'm still here is that um, I had the fortitude to get up from that and wake up the next day, go into work, and work as hard as, as I could to try to resolve the issue. Um, if anybody thinks it's a straight line, <laughs> get rid of that thought. You know, it, it, you will fail multiple times before you succeed. And I think managing the emotion of that and managing your team's emotion and bringing in talent that understands that this is a marathon, not a sprint, that we're in it together, we're going to get there together, have the confidence of that, build that confidence into the team is, uh, is paramount to, to doing it. Um, the other thing is, uh, maybe I knew my own failures, but when you're in a very rapid uh, rate of growth and change, it, uh, it's beneficial, at least to me, to realize you don't know 
what you need to know, and you're probably not growing as fast as the business is. So I've always had coaches. I've reached out and either you know, paid for coaching or found people that would take an interest. And uh, what I learned now that I've done it a little while is they're only good for about a year to two years because you get so passionate about what you're doing together that you start telling each other the kind of things you, you know, <laughs> don't want to hear. You want to hear the challenging stuff. So you've got to turn over your coaches, get them fresh, and you're scaling so fast that the coach in that segment of the business isn't going to be the right one for that. Um, so, uh, you know, being humble enough to reach out and constantly be open enough, it's entrepreneurship is, is this fundamental tug that on the one side you have to be dogged about, you have a view of the world that no one else shares and you have to pursue that. On the other side, you have to know when not to be that way and to be open and to listen and to work to try to try to find the answers and, and they won't come from you. So I think, and it gets more complex as you go commercialize and then you, you have customers and you go public and you have a whole different rich set of stakeholders. You have to open up more and more and more. And I think it, it challenges uh, some people to, to make that kind of migration to um, to being that open, but also knowing when you can't be open, when you have to be disciplined about your mission and where you're going and, and rally the troops to get there through uh, you know, things that are unimaginable and nobody believes you can be successful. You have to be pretty convincing at times. Philip, turning to you, uh, had very successful funding rounds in an especially tough space, orthopedics, and in an even tougher funding environment. So what's your secret? Well, was, we did pretty much everything. Challenging. We did pretty much everything that you can do wrong. We did do wrong at the outset. You don't want to know how many VCs I talked to in our Series A in Silicon Valley, and who said, "What are you talking about?" Um, and uh, building on that success or failure, we had early on we had to resort to different means of funding the company. So, example, we did what we uh, knew how to do it. We wrote grants. We went to the federal government, we got a couple of uh, high technology, high risk grants, for example, that helped us to d develop some of the initial technology behind it. And then just continuous networking uh, with a broad array of investors. So I'm originally from Europe, so I had contacts over in Europe. Uh, I certainly continued working with uh, the investor community in the United States, but basically broadened the circle uh, from there broadened the circle uh, into Middle East. And so in our CVC financing, we got the first uh, Middle, of Middle Eastern investors, actually. And then as 2008 came uh, and the Lehman crisis hit, um, you know, here you have this small company at the time, 11 employees, that's not profitable. That was very fortunate because we had the first couple of products, the first two products in the market we were selling. We were not a future promise anymore. There was actually a device that was being implanted. There were patients being operated in the US and Europe. It was credible that you could actually really build a business and a highly differentiated business with that. Uh, and so based on that premise, we continued working with investors and now across the globe. So as the US melted down, we reached out to our contacts in the Middle East. There the equity markets were still intact. And some of these investors, very sophisticated, some we brought in the first sovereign wealth funds. Um, some, some of these funds that I invested today manage 
north of 100 billion, some hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, so we brought in this circle of investors and uh, went through very, very extensive due diligence. Uh, very sophisticated overall. IP was a big, again, here's the small company, still early in revenue. Uh, the question, is it really platform? How strong is your IP? That was uh, extensively addressed by each of those investors through typically very sophisticated US law firms. So we went early in the, in the life of the company with these investors, went to very extensive IP due diligence. And as you broaden that circle of investors and that track record and building that credibility, um, it, that became more easy. It's never easy. It's always difficult. Uh, 2009 was the most grueling in our experience. It was, uh, we raised $72 million in that environment. Uh, it was just horrible. Uh, and um, what really helped us there, again, we had a product in the market. We had early sales. We had gangbuster IP. That was confirmed by multiple independent law firms in the United States. And then you build on that success. And I would add to that the other rule um, for any entrepreneur, um, when you have successfully raised your round of money, you're not done. You have to start thinking right away, raising your next round of money. And the philosophy is when you have money, that's the best time to raise money. So the moment we, wrote, we, we closed on a round, we closed on $72 million, we closed on $89 million. Guess what? We were out there again. We were raising the next round. We were talking to the next circle of investors. Because at the end of the day, if you have an exciting technology and you have the IP to back it and you're growing your company and you're adding product, it will all come down to liquidity down the road. If it's as a public company to an IPO and you're raising the money there, uh, you need to have the proper liquidity in the company to A, grow the business, to B, add product, and in due time also certainly to start leveraging your intellectual property. When you have success, other people will start following. And for all of those things, you need the a sufficient capital structure behind it. Um, so that was sort of the overall vision behind it, and we continue operating along, along that course. And like Jeff, you're still leading the company you founded. What's the hardest part of holding on to that role? Um, it's hard every day. <laughs> and um, I mean, there's always three steps forward and a big step back. Uh, and you learn every day and you make mistakes. Um, and I think the single most important thing that I would say how, how you manage to do that, either you have mentors. Um, from our perspective, we have a fantastic board. We have, for example, the president, uh, former president of Zimmer is on our board who grew them from approximately 100 million in annual sales to over a billion. So we have a number of industry veterans who have really over the years added tremendous value. But then on the flip side, management. Uh, we've been really proactive about having a superb management team in place and we continue building that management team. Um, and so you can rest assured um, if you uh, are starting your little company and you're building it and all of a sudden it's not so little anymore, uh, and you continue growing it, you're going to make tons of mistakes along the way. And the only way how, how you work through that is if you have a great management team and you have good governance and a good and supportive board that's really behind you. Rick, turning to you, I want to ask each of you a, a set of three questions. What's the best lesson on leadership you've learned in your years as a CEO? Do I only pick one? <laughs> I mean, the, the list is so long. Um, 
So I think it's probably patience, especially in the medical device world where things don't necessarily move to a time frame that you want them to move to. And sometimes it's not, there's nothing that you can do to move a regulator uh, to get through that clinical trial. You just need to be patient. And uh, I've been running Zoll for a while and while I'm still young, I was younger and I was never, you know, I was a pretty impatient person when I first started at Zoll. Uh, and I think just having the patience to understand that it may take some time, but it's going to be worth it getting, putting in that time to get to the end, uh, it's probably the biggest lesson that I learned. Jeff? Uh, it was pretty simple. I was in a situation where personalities were flaring and the simple advice was there's no substitute for performance. They're not going to change you out if you're performing. And I think a lot of times you get, you try to make it richer, you try to make it deeper, and it's not. Just perform. So put your head down, get it done, and move on. Philip? I would say patience, persistence, and listen. Uh, recognize the trends that are happening in your industry. I love what Karen Latrisa mentioned earlier, how the medical device market is changing. It's not, it, it doesn't suffice anymore to have a device that is better. It doesn't suffice to have better clinical results. You need to address multiple customers here. You need to address not only the patient with better results, you need to address the physician, example, with, more, with any device with more simple and more accurate surgery. You need to address the hospital with a much cheaper delivery system with maybe shorter length of stay uh, and recognizing some of those trends as, as they evolve. I think that's key and making sure that your product portfolio really hits those trends and addresses every single one of those. I think that's absolutely key. Amar? A couple of things. I think uh, one is always have plan B because <laughs> you're going to need it. <laughs> Sometimes plan A doesn't go follow a direct straight line. So while you're fixing plan A, you got plan B, and you can pull that. So we've never ended up having down rounds because you know, we had uh, at Ocular, uh, FDA made us repeat our whole pivotal clinical trial because they decided in their wisdom that it's not a 510K, now it's a PMA. Um, we raised money at an uh, elevated valuation uh, where most companies would have shut down. Uh, so we had a plan B. We were working on drug delivery. We, positioned the company more so, and suddenly we realized actually things actually worked out over there. So having a little bit of a portfolio kind of an approach is important. And then from the inward uh, functioning side, having, you've got to be the cheerleader. Um, there'll be dark, dismal days, and you've got to be the person who sort of is bright and optimistic and communicates that, so instills confidence, and then the team will do things that they didn't even know they could do and they will rise to the occasion. What was your, what moment are you most proud of as a leader, and what do you view as your worst moment? So, th there have been several, uh, but one particularly kind of comes to mind on, on, which was, I think, good. We had a situation at the MarketRx, which is this analytics company that uh, I was the chairman of. Wasn't the brains behind it. Uh, my uh, cousin actually was, but he was a fresh entrepreneur. So we had this uh, guy on the board, uh, actually he wasn't on the board, but he was a big investor. He was one of the largest private equity firms. His name was the leading of the two names. So the guy is a billionaire. And so we had 
a bunch of all the top 20 pharma companies eventually became our customers, but at that time we had four or five of them only. And one of them went through a merger, and in the merger they put everything on hold and they were responsible for 25% of our revenue. And 25% of our revenue suddenly evaporated. This guy got on our case and he would not let go. <coughs> we said, look, it wasn't something, yes, we should have diversified more. We're starting out with two years, we're cash flow positive for crying out loud in two years. When does that happen? But the guy would not let go. And he had put in some money, $5 million of his own net, kind of wasn't coming from the private equity thing. So we listened to him, listened to him for a while. And this first time CEO was just sitting there, taking it, taking it, taking it. And there is tough love to be given, but it's, there's got to be some love there. You can't just be all Mr. <laughs> tough guy. So at that point in time, to kind of, I, I said, look, do you want your money and take it back? Take it back. We'll find other money. So to so stand up to the, a bully who, we don't need that dynamic on the board. And it's very oftentimes you end up with a board that, you know, is not stacked in favor of the company with startups, sometimes it'll happen. So to be able to kind of make sure that people are pulling for all shareholders, not just the investors, but for the company also. So that, so ever since then, my boards have been nicely stacked with insiders, independents, investors, and we have a productive session. So that was the good part, uh, the bad part, uh, things. On the, on the good side, uh, actually the worst moment that uh, I realized is that I was too much of a softy myself. In initial, I, was, I avoided conflict, and there were times when the culture of the company was drifting. There were a few bad apples that were making the whole thing kind of go sour. And they were becoming more and more, you know, sit at the lunch table and propagate that and the water cooler conversations. And the culture was drifting and I wasn't able to fix that. So I eventually ended up hiring a chief operating officer who came in and really sorted the stuff out. But and I learned my lesson saying I should have fired those people at that stage. I didn't do that. So that was a low point. Philip? I start with the low point. Um, 2008 or 2009, I think it was 2008, we had our first recall. And here's the small company, it's your first product, you've put all of your effort, all of your investment into this, you're really excited about it. And we had a situation where one, internally actually one of the people who were inspecting the devices saw some micro fissures on the edge of an implant. We saw a handful of those, we struggled, is it significant or not? We had voices internally who said it's not significant. I know today, they were right, but we really struggled with this and we said we got to do the right thing. We initiated the recall. Uh, we got all of those devices back because everything is patient-specific. We have patient-specific serial numbers, so in the end it actually turned out only to be 17 devices in the field. But even so, having a recall as a small startup company uh, at the time is, is devastating. <coughs> And um, so that was a very, very difficult uh, and challenging period. And you can rest assured with many of the investors subsequently, we were asked what happened there, how severe was this? Well, 17 patients, 17 too many. Um, and, but having to manage through that was, was very humbling. And th those are the type of, types of moments where you really kind of think uh, everything is at, in fact, everything is at stake and um, you have to manage through it. That was very difficult. Um, and uh, now, on the positive side, again, as a young emerging company, uh, you're betting everything on your next big product. 
And so we had 2008 through 2011, we had partial knee, uh, two partial knee systems, wonderful clinical data. But who cares? It's only 10% of the market. We had a superior delivery system. We ship it out, for those of you who haven't been on the website, uh, we ship it in a single package, fully pre-sterilized. There's no more inventory management more anymore for the OR. Much more simple, faster setup, faster teardown time, uh, faster teardown uh, for many surgeons, shorter OR time. And, um, but so we needed to have that total knee product. That's 90% of the market. So first was delayed. Couldn't get it through the FDA. Uh, major orthopedic companies were getting uh, warning letters, recalls, uh, FDA really cranking up the scrutiny in orthopedics. Uh, it took us about close to a year, year and a half longer to get the product. So finally, we have the product. We start doing the first couple of surgeries, and we're sweating it. We're betting the company on this. We're sweating it every step uh, along the way. And sort of the first gratification that I got personally was about three months after the first surgery, a patient called unsolicited. And um, the receptionist put her through, I have the patient on the phone, and she's telling me she's an total patient, um, and she has a contralateral off the shelf knee in her other knee, and she's telling me t totally ecstatic how well she's doing three months after the surgery. And you know, so here's this you know, CEO of this uh, young emerging company, and you're hearing it, this, is, this was the first confirmation that, boy, maybe we're really onto something. Uh, and then since then, we've, that was uh, early 2011, so since then, you know, we've, we've built a body of uh, clinical evidence, and every, every time the next data point comes in that show it's better, uh, that's huge. Um, so that steady progression, basically, uh, I, th I think that that's what makes all the difference. And I would last, I would add, uh, we went into broad, broad commercial launch after we had done a couple of thousand surgeries and limited release. We went to, into broad commercial launch uh, September 15 of 2012. Um, and now having a product that can really address the broad market in knee, re knee replacement with a superior delivery model, single box pre-sterilized, uh, disposable instruments. Um, the, what we've seen just in the first six months post-launch, we signed up several hundred hospitals uh, and hospital operators with uh, vendor agreements, preferred vendor agreements, pricing agreements, and that for a company our size was just, uh, is mind-boggling and that trend continues. Uh, and that's just direct confirmation that it's the right business model, there is a real need in the market, uh, and that's helping to drive sales. Jeff, Rick, we're running very short on time. Can you give us your best and worst moments? Uh, I'll start with worst, uh, and, and both are really around people and personal stuff. Uh, worst is when you're growing, we, we tripled in size for about four consecutive years, so you're growing like a rocket. You're gonna outgrow people, and I didn't have the skills on how to displace those people. So my low points were earlier in my career when I had to make some HR changes um, I regret kind of the way I did those. There are so many highs in the business, but that's not the high I'm gonna share with you. The high is that I've had this experience with the business, and despite all that content, I have four wonderful boys and a beautiful wife, which is the same one I started the company with. <laughs> Rick, can you wrap it up for us? Uh, yeah, my, I have bookends, so in 2004, I grew the sales force immensely, and then we hit a municipal slowdown. Our business was in the tank. We lost money for the first time. 
I had to lay people off. I said, I'm never going to do that as the leader of Zoll again. Fast forward to 2009, we're mostly a capital equipment company. The financial crisis comes, business is in the toilet. I have to look in the mirror and said, I'm never going to, I said I wasn't going to do that as the leader of Zoll, so either I can't be the leader of Zoll or I have to find another way through. And um, so we kept all of our people, even though we took our profits all the way down to zero. It was public at the time. We explained that to our, our investors. Uh, we told them while everybody else was retreating in our industry, we were going to buy. We added salespeople. We bought hypothermia. We invested in the life vest. And it really is what made Zoll the company that it is today. All right, good. Well, I want to thank you all so much for joining us tonight. How about a round of applause?